Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra, and gives respect to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast. Today we have classic dystopias, a panel discussion recorded as part of our Classic Dystopias film series at Bagungananyan North Fitzroy Library. Our unpleasant future experts for the day were Metro Editor Adolfo Aranjuez, Orphan Corp author Marley Jane Ward, and Peter Allen from the Victorian College of the Arts. Following screenings of Metropolis, Blade Runner, and Alphaville, our panel asked, what makes a classic dystopia? What can we learn from them? And what does the future really hold in store for us? Hi everyone, my name is Adolfo. I'm, among other things, the um, editor of Metro, which is Australia's oldest film and media periodical. I was shopping the other day and this girl was like, oh, I know your face. Where have I seen you? Anyway, I'm sorry. So I'm around. Um, I, I do a whole bunch of stuff, but this is my brief bio. Um, and to my left, I've got Peter Allen, who is a filmmaker and academic who lectures full-time at the Victorian College of the Arts School of Film and Television. And further to my left is Molly Jane Ward, whose debut dystopian novella, Welcome to Orphan Corp, won the Vivla Novella Prize and the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for YA Fiction. The sequel to that, Synode, came out in May this year. Please join me in welcoming them. So I guess the way... Um, in consultation with the speakers um, that I've structured the event is that I guess we'll talk about the notion of dystopia as representation. So in the context of not just their book or film, you know, depictions of our anxieties, but also as a representation, um, our present kind of projected onto a text and also a way to maybe conceive of alternative futures um, or ways we can avoid the trajectory that we seem to be on. And it's structured in three parts, um, what, how and why dystopias, and then we'll end with a Q&A just so you all can be part of the conversation. Um, so I guess to start off with, I kind of wanted to talk about the origin of um, dystopia as a concept. And I know you maybe wanted to talk about this, Peter. But so I guess basically, I like your mouth if, you want, if you'd like to. You brought it up in the email trail. Um, <laughs> yeah, so um, the idea of dystopia came originally from Thomas More's concept of utopia. Um, and I guess it's an inversion of that. But I'll let you maybe chat about that. Yes, back in uh, back in the day, Sir Thomas More wrote um, about a fictional place, uh, an island called Utopia, which we've you know we understand the concept of a utopia as being an idyllic place. From memory, the term utopia actually meant no place or you know good place, but of course, a utopia um, as a place that's perfect is very much dependent on a point of view. So um, one of the interesting things I think about Thomas More's in, uh, vision for his utopian place is it sounds like a great place if you're Thomas More. Um, but if you happen to be one of the slaves that he imagined would be working there, that's not such a great place. Um, yeah, uh, it was a, he was a very pious man, so it was incredibly religiously restrictive, his vision for the, perf- you know, the perfect society. So uh, things like every year the wives would have to kind of kneel before their husbands and confess how they were, you know, any of their imperfections in housekeeping or whatever it is they'd done throughout the year, So, which doesn't sound great. If you happen to be into premarital sex, you know, you're welcome to a lifetime of slavery and celibacy. Uh, so it's very much about that point of view. So it's uh, interesting that 
whatever you present, even if it's supposedly a utopia, it's actually there's that dysfunctional aspect of it for certain aspects of society or certain parts of society. So, you know, the idea of a dystopia, as I guess, has that dysfunctional place. Like so, that's kind of where we get that term. That's the the spring of that terminology for us. Yeah. Um, and Molly, so. I mean, you've written, I guess, two now um, in this context, dystopian novels. Where did you get the the concept from? Were you kind of deliberately seeking out to make sociopolitical commentary, which seems to be one of the driving forces of dystopia as a, as a form? So initially, uh, I wrote the story as a desperate uh, grab for ideas when I went to a um, writer's workshop in the States called Clarion West. My... Initial ideas file had three words, welcome to Orphan Corp with a question mark because I've been socialised to question all of my ideas and decisions. Um, (laughs) So I wrote it as a short story and extended it into a novella. I definitely did intend to put the sort of socioeconomic, political kind of messages in, but I think they came later as I was um, converting it from a short story to a novella. Obviously, I was able to be more complex and explore things a little bit deeper. It's a young adult book, and so I wanted to sort of jam as many ideas as I could in get them young, that kind of thing. (laughs) Um, But uh, as research, I I did a – when I was very young, maybe 11 or so, I read – watched a documentary or an article about Romanian orphanages uh, under Kosovo in the 1980s, I believe. And that stayed with me um, my whole life. It really affected me as a child. And so I sort of revisited that. And I also looked at for-profit prisons, juvenile justice system, and um, obviously children in detention. And then I also just thought that if there was going to be a sort of orphanage system in the future, in a dystopian future, it would be for profit and the children would essentially be child labour, which is a big part of what the book is about. Okay, so yeah, uh, the book Welcome to Orphan Corp is about a young girl who's grown up in an industrial corporate run orphanage and she is about to age out. It's her last week there. Uh, And so she's got to try and keep out of trouble so she doesn't get transferred straight from the orphan corp. And orphan corp is just an all-encompassing word that the that people have made up that not called orphan corp. But she she has to stay out of trouble so she doesn't get transferred straight from an orphan corp into a prison corp. Um, and yeah, it's it's basically her and the other kids battling against the system and themselves. I kind of when I was doing research for um, this panel, I kind of came to four. And feel free to say if there are more than four kind of main characteristics that I, I tended to see as a, as a pattern, I guess, or shared by different kinds of dystopias. One which you did touch on is this idea of you know having a near future setting. Another one is kind of having a stratified society or certain citizens being deemed lesser than others. Um, a third is having a kind of fascistic government, or if not a government, a government figure, or just a person even. And a fourth is, yeah, obviously there has to be a hero, otherwise there wouldn't be a narrative. Do either of you want to just comment on kind of these these little elements and how they how they work, maybe, and then we'll lead into the next section? <clears throat> sure. I, um, one of the interesting things I think about um, a lot of dystopian fiction, if I can, I, I might address the kind of the idea of the hero is that um, regardless of the political standpoint of the writer, and the writer may have a particular, um, they might be they may be writing a text as a warning against a, a socialist dystopia, or it may be against a capitalistic dystopia. Like the, you know, regardless. 
Um, the hero is generally somebody who demonstrates some form of individual exceptionalism, which is often ironic in that the problem with the society that they're attempting to address is that, you know, for example, if you take, say, the Hunger Games, you know, Katniss is attempting to say everybody should be taken care of, everybody's important, everybody should be, you know, considered, and I'm going to fix it, you know. That's kind of the attitude that, you know, the, the narrative often takes. It's this individual exceptionalism that... Um, yeah, which is uh, which I find fascinating, and one of the classic examples of that maybe would be from the seventies with the film Rollerball. Uh, I think it was a novel as well, but I remember the James Caan kind of film version. Yeah, where the, it's a it's a corporate dystopia um, where they constructed this game that's supposedly only winnable through pure teamwork to prove to everybody, all the fans, that individuals don't matter. And then somebody comes along who's so individually good that they, you know, dominate the game and prove, you know, I don't know what they prove. They, they prove that individuals matter. They prove something which causes something which ends up, you know, changing society, yeah. Uh, but I, I find that that, that, current, that current thread of individual exceptionalism um, seems to be consistent across all dystopian narratives regardless of the instigation or, or why the author wants to start that out. I don't know whether you have any thoughts on that, Marley. Probably. <laughs> um, I was thinking more about the stratified society um, or the tot totalitarian sort of regime. And one thing that I find really interesting about dystopias is, and I had this thought while you were talking about the uh, subject, so if I have a thought I immediately have to say it or I lose it completely forever and I feel like I'm almost about to lose this one. <laughs> but... Um, uh, what's dystopian for one person uh, is reality f for another. So we come from a really pri privileged position and what's dystopian to a first world Western uh, kind of society is someone else's actual reality. So in, in writing these dystopias, um, we have to sort of recognise that we come from a privileged position and that people are living, you know, under terrible regimes and as we speak and sort of, you know, fleeing climate change as we speak or we will be seeing it more as time goes on. So, yeah, there's this real notion of, of the fact that, you know, do we live in a dystopia right now? Do we? I kind of feel like we do. And in terms of um, how you put together, I mean, we've talked about these different elements, you know, how do you think um, – a novelist or a filmmaker, how how would someone go about making an effective world? Because if you know you need to create a world, it may be a near future world that isn't our own, but at the same time, it still needs to be believable. You know, the issues in it need to be convincing to a modern audience. Um, maybe you could talk about film, you can, and Molly, you could talk about novels. What makes an effective dystopian world? It's, I mean, world building probably doesn't vary that much from text, uh, written text to visual text, but uh, ultimately it comes down, I guess, to the logic of the world that you build. Like every world that you construct must have uh, a believable internal logic to that world. And I don't care how high concept or fantasy that structure is, you know, whatever your hook is, the thing that, you know, that makes, um, uh, that makes it the sci-fi or the fantasy aspect of it or whatever it might be, um, you can, it can be as crazy as you want, as long as the logic works throughout the entire society that you construct. So, um, you know, if you want to, you know, write a Logan's run where there's a city inside a bubble and, then, you know, I think, I think in the, in the original text, it was when you turned 19 or something like that, you were, you know, 
sacrificed. I thought you were heading out. In the film, they aged that up to 30 so that um, Michael York could star. But the logic for that society makes sense. When you follow that narrative through, it's like, yeah, okay, I can see how everything is structured and and I, I get how that works. The problems you have with unbelievable kind of um, worlds are when you you know something crazy happens, but nothing else supports that in that society. When you look at every other structure or system or character, it's like that doesn't make sense for for that thing, whatever that might be. So it's really about whatever you write, make sure that everything else supports that in some way. The other thing I think is near future is really a, a really um, important aspect as well in the sense that say you if you look at Alphaville for example, like they just you know it was. It was near future in the sense that they would do things like give the character a brand new model, like Instamatic camera, and then have somebody casually say, oh, you've got a really old camera. It's like, yeah, I'm not keen on new technology. So it's kind of that thing of, okay, well, I recognize that, and I see that as being cutting edge, but they obviously think that's like 20, 30 years old, something like that. So you you get that sense of the lived-in world. And I think it was an Arnold Schwarzenegger film, maybe The Sixth Day, which did a similar thing. I think just the year that the new Volkswagen Beetle came out, they have him run through a junk junkyard, a wrecker's yard, and there's a really, you know, rusted old wreck of the new Volkswagen Beetle that had just come out that year. And it's like, okay, well, I get that now. I understand. This is setting a space, a place and a time that's not too far beyond my understanding. I can I can relate to those little elements. Um, and I think those kind of little things you can relate to, things I recognize, um, attached to a logic that makes sense as we sort of journey through the world, make, you know, that's how you start to build a world. I um, have a lot of thoughts and feelings about world building. I prefer really light touch with world building. So I feel, I think it was Charlie Jane Anders who said, uh, if you feel like you're not telling people enough, you're probably still telling them too much. Um, I hate exposition. So when I, if there's more than a paragraph of exposition about the world, I'm, I'm out, I'm done. It's important to show the world through the characters and how they move through it. And creating a near future world, Orphan Corp has exactly the same kind of concept as, that you were just talking about in that uh, the kids get given old tablets, old busted up tablets. And of course there are newer forms of uh, technology that are in use, but because these children are at such a low point in society, they get the cast offs, the old remnants, which kind of grounds it in in technology that people can understand while still placing it in the future in that these things are obsolete yeah so world building for science fiction I I really do think that it that it needs to be quite light and I believe and I trust the reader to have enough imagination that they're able to fill in the gaps yeah yeah I completely agree I think a light touch is really important and certainly when I'm discussing story structure with my students or story elements it's always about that thing of you don't necessarily have to tell the audience how everything connects or what the the full kind of explanation is, but you as an artist need to know. Yeah, so that no matter what you do, there is a logic to it and it does hold together. And if you haven't solved those problems, then um, you know, things start to fall apart and it, the audience will start to smell that I don't think this person, you know, they want to be in the hands of somebody who clearly knows what they're doing and is ahead of them. And when you haven't solved those problems yourself, they start to smell it. And it's like, I don't think this person is as smart as I am. <laughs> like so. Um, I'm thinking instantly, and everything makes me think of this movie, uh, of Children of Men, which does a really amazing job with its world building. And the most subtle of touches here and there 
so light and so perfect, placing it just ahead of us but never out of reach. Um, we look at the cars and you get flashes of the news and um, just these perfect little touches that come in uh, that are almost imperceptible, is that the right word? But just enough to give um, the impression of that like the day after tomorrow, um, which I just find spectacular. It's an amazing movie. I can't say enough good stuff about it. I could talk about it. We could have a whole panel just about Children of Men. Do you want to? It'll be great. It'll be great. Molly forewarned us in the email trail that this would happen. That's cool. We can build on this like a world. Uh, so, and this is something that I want to bring up now because you brought up Children of Men. I, I once had a piece in Metro a few years back um, talking about dystopias. And the author kept talking about post-apocalyptic depictions. And I was like, you know, it went through editing and everything and it was, the copy was great and the, you know, the criticism was, was superb. And we were, during the layout stage, I kind of had this kind of freak out that, that, that they're separate terms, like they're separate terms, they must refer to different things. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I wanted to kind of talk about that relationship between dystopian and either apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic, um, yeah, um, forms. Is it necessary to have an apocalypse or at least an impending apocalypse um, to create or to kind of tell a dystopian story? Um, I was reading an article, I think it was written by Cory Doctorow, um, saying how do you not turn a disaster into a dystopia? Um, and it's all about creating an environment where people don't trust their neighbours, uh, that sense of individualism and me and mine. Um, and so I think with the post-apocalyptic, you're looking at a large event that takes out the system of government, the technology that we use every day uh it takes out everything whereas in a dystopia it's more of a societal trickle down of most dystopias that i've seen definitely have that stratified system and and so the the post-apocalyptic kind of i I guess why it kind of gets uh mixed up is that post-apocalyptic thing is is perhaps it is an apocalypse for the people on the lowest level but I can see how the terms kind of easily get mixed up. I was looking at um, uh, articles on best dystopian books and, I mean, I'm always looking for new for new dystopian books to read because it's my jam. Uh, and I found a lot of post-apocalyptic titles in. I suppose that a, a dystopia can be built again after an apocalypse, but generally a post-apocalyptic fiction really focuses on the individualism and sort of reversion back to tribalism that would go on after large-scale disaster, whereas dystopian is more of a slow-creeping kind of apocalypse uh, that affects people at every level of society. And usually there's, instead of the ruling class or party being destroyed, which happens in an apocalypse, um, the ruling class gets stronger and the terribleness trickles down. Uh, yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Like the, a dystopian society is really something that is um, endemic to the culture. In, in that it's um, it's a structure that exists. Um, everything in, within a dystopia um, is formalized. It's all kind of working for somebody, usually somebody at the very top. Um, whereas with a with an apocalyptic event, like that's a massive disaster or war or some kind of event which disrupts um, society immediately. Uh, but from that. Although society may be disrupted from that, often there's the seeds of hope that you can get things back again. Um, and with a dystopian 
environment or, or the or not yeah or something new i think in the, i haven't read the novel but i remember seeing the i was one of the two people to see the movie the postman um <laughs> <laughs> with uh, kevin costner uh which depicts a post-apocalyptic society um but by the end of that there's clear evidence that they are rebuilding um a more uh you know user-friendly kind of environment um and, and society is rebuilding itself to something that's a bit more approximate to the original um american society that they came from so i guess it's that sense of the apocalypse gives you the option it, it lays open the idea that we could go this way or we could go this way what's going to happen yeah that's right yeah it wipes out kind of a whole bunch of stuff and what's going to happen now Whereas with a dystopia, it's kind of too late for that. It's this thing of, well, the structure is there already and it's a massive behemoth and how can I possibly, you know, fight against it? I'm interested in your thoughts because um, you were talking about, what is it, The Postman? Yes. I haven't known about it either. Yeah. I am, I'm one of the millions who haven't seen it, it seems. Oh, my God, this is on record. And... <laughs> Oh yes, so they, the the government was intending to, or you know, rebuild, or trying to rebuild the society pre collapse. Um, and we were talking, you were talking also about this idea of perspective. You know, whose perspective is it coming from? Um, I wanted to get your comment on this notion of intention. So the, these governments do legitimately, I think, generally think that they're doing the right thing by their citizens and by their societies by having these really rigid, hierarchical, yeah, oppressive. But you know, but I don't think they think that they're, they're oppressive in these governments. I think it's quite really easy for a government to act in people's best interests. Then you look at something like The Handmaid's Tale. We're acting in the best interest of the top percentage, usually at the, the detriment of everybody at the bottom. Um, and if you look at today's society, it's not that different really. So when it comes to the structures that kind of create that environment. I mean, I'm always blaming capitalism. I blame, I blame capitalism for everything. So something goes wrong in my day. I'm like capitalism, but, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's a system that thinks it's rewarding, but in actuality is a prison for, for a lot of people. It's, it's such a contemporary and current issue as well. I think if, I mean, if you want to talk about how does somebody, be so oppressive and assume that they're doing good. It's like I don't, I don't know what. It, how does Peter Dutton sleep at night? I mean, I don't. You know, it's yeah. You know, we we live in that society now. Like it's not hard to imagine. So um, you know, how does Rupert Murdoch? How does he look himself in the mirror? Like all of these people, like they have such power and such um, access to resources and wealth, and and they use it in the benefit of a very very small number of people. You know, the shareholders of the company, or you know, the the voters for that pillar political party um and often it's very self-serving it's because you know um we want to get re-elected so we have to cater to the whims of our particular vote core voters and um you know and, and it's always that thing of but i'm doing good for my constituency i'm um and damn everybody else like they're not my problem you know so if you want to talk about do we live in a dystopia i mean we live in a great affluent country and have wonderful lives uh, you know living in luxury that humanity could never have dreamed of like you know the Egyptian pharaohs didn't live in the kind of luxury that we live in, but then we don't work in a Bangladeshi garment factory. So, you know, it is perspective. And I think just before we move on to um, the why section of, of my beautiful structure, um, I wanted to go back to this, um, the discussion of, of tablets and things. So just technology. Um, it seems that technology plays a really important role in, in dystopian storylines, um, usually as a kind of way to keep the, I guess, the, the lower classes uh, subdued 
or domesticated. I mean, you know, you have that, that extends from surveillance and mind control to even just basic things like in um, in Metropolis, the people, the lower classes are working to sustain the city. You know, they're, they're trapped there. Do you think, uh, what, do you, what do you think about this idea that the technology is evil or at least, you know, an enabler for us to have these, a dystopian future? Technology is often, I think, seen by authors as being something to be wary of. So absolutely, there is that thing of, you know, as soon as we started to hear about genetics, it became this whole thing of, oh my God, what happens if people <laughs> manipulate all life forms? What, are we human anymore? Uh, when we get things like, um, not just Blade Runner, but looking back, you know, Brave New World and with Huxley and things like that. So it's this questioning of what does this mean? Like we always struggle with this idea of this new technology and what does that mean for humanity? So I think it's um, it's it makes for a much better story to think to consider that perhaps it means something scary than perhaps it means something really, really good because that's really boring. At the same time, I think a lot of people have very valid and real concerns about um, things like weaponized drones and what happens if we give them AI, like does it turn, turn into Terminator? Like, you know, who's to say? Um, so it's... I've worked as a visual effects artist. If I could just film that for real, like that would be awesome. That would make my job so much easier. So I think technology is often used that way, but it's in, but classically with dystopian, as we're saying, it's a very much near future technology. It's always that thing of it's something that's not quite in our reach yet, but looks like it might be just over the horizon. And how will that impact humanity? And that's why it becomes so relevant to us, because it is something that we need to think about. And, you know, in 1982, it was impossible to really consider the idea of um, genetically constructed life forms, really. But now they're genuinely talking about doing it. So Blade Runner, yeah. So, right. so but, you know, now, like, you know, here we are, whatever it is, 40-odd years later, 30-something years later, and, and there are scientists promoting the idea of we are going to construct an artificial life form. It's going to happen in the next few years. Like, it'll be bacteria, but it's going to happen. So... You know, it's um, it's just looking a few decades down the road and can, trying to answer those questions before we reach there and, and realise we never thought about this. So, yeah. I think that's happening a lot with technology in general. It moves faster than we can do the research uh, into what it might actually do to us. Um, I'm pretty sure the internet has completely re- rewired my brain. My attention span is about this much. I also have ADHD, so that probably doesn't help. So it's why I lose my train of thought a lot. Uh, so you have to excuse me. Um, I think it's really difficult for, especially authors, uh, and I guess anyone sort of writing um, for film and television, to make the technology in dystopian fiction uh, and near, near future fiction convincing. You don't want to... Of course, you want to have a book that has longevity. You don't want to then date it when in 50 years somebody's like reading your classic literature um, and, oh, oh, this is horribly dated. Like, so, so that kind of comes into effect when people are writing uh, near future, um, day after tomorrow kind of, of fiction. The technology that we, like in my lifetime, I've grown up in that interstitial, is that how you say it, place between no tech, like between low tech 80s and high tech now and coming from that generation, you know, I'm 35 years old. I didn't have a computer until I was 21 and going from that to the the way I live now, I never thought it possible. I couldn't even have imagined it. So I'm a little frightened that I can't even imagine what's coming next and yet I do write science and dystopian fiction and 
you know, will I be able to keep up with what's actually ha- what's with what's actually happening? You know, they're you, you were saying they're they're making artificial beings, but only bacteria. But if they could fix my gut bacteria, that would be amazing. So I'm going to be first in line for that. Nanoparticle bacteria, just like put it straight in me. There was an SBS um, documentary about that, which I won't say on the record because it's a bit gross. But there are ways to repair your um, oh, yes. flora. Yes. <clears throat> okay, so time has run away from us, and this is my last page, and we I want to give you time to ask questions. So I'm going to condense this whole why section. Um, so, Peter, you said, um, you know, dystopias kind of flag things that we should be thinking about. Marley just saying you said that you couldn't have imagined the things that were coming. And during the email trail, you also described dystopias as a mirror to the present. I guess um, as a way to round, round off um, our discussion what are your thoughts on the role of dystopias as kind of warnings? I mean, given that they're all set in near futures that are within reach, you, I mean, things did change between when you've maybe first engaged with Blade Runner or something, and then now it may not be exactly the same, but yeah, I kind of, this idea that it's, it's prophesied a kind of future. Mm. A while ago when I was um, researching dystopias for some other panel, I think this was a year or so ago, I came across this article and I've never been able to find it again. But um, there was apparently a bit of Russian dystopian fiction coming out at the turn of the century um, and it was called something in Russian, but it technically turned – it was in Russian obviously, um, but technically translated to If This Continues and that sort of mode of fiction had like a little burst of popularity and – I believe the same thing's happening right now. We're looking at the world being as messed up as it is and the things that are going on right now. What happens if they continue? And that's kind of when I was writing Welcome to Orphan Corp and blaming capitalism for all of my life's problems, I I thought what if what if this continues? What happens if capitalism goes even madder than it already has? What would that world look like? And that's where I got the inspiration. The interesting thing is that it's only one of many possible futures as to what can happen if this continues. And I really love that phrase when thinking about dystopian fiction because I mean, you can apply it to so many different issues and problems that are going on. At the moment I'm writing a short story um, uh, that was inspired by reading articles about women in the alt-right movement. What happens if that continues? What would life for a woman look like in an inherently misogynistic movement? Um, The story is turned into something about a wider ethno-state where women are their own punishers because they've been so socialised to believe that they're less, um, which is just a reflection of what's happening right now in the alt-right women having their place and and women being involved in such a misogynistic kind of culture what happens if that continues and what does that look like and I think that that's why I like writing dystopian fiction because I like having the opportunity to imagine what those worlds might look like yeah which is really interesting because those of you if you've seen The Handmaid's Tale that's basically um, a core narrative thread for that as well where women were heavily involved in the initial structure of um, in, and wrote some of the laws of that society which ultimately becomes you know immensely misogynistic and, and you know they're definitely um, on the lowest part of the um, 
you know, social status. So, and when you look at the, when you look at the structure, that one of the interesting things about that story is how um, even the characters within it say, you know, they can't believe how quickly things changed for them, but also how quickly they accepted those changes. You know, you have characters who were there saying, "I can't believe that two years ago, you know, life was completely different," but I also can't believe how I immediately respond to seeing somebody dressed the way I used to dress. You know, I think there's a moment in the books where some Japanese tourists visit the city that. Um, uh, I forget the name of the lead character. Um, Alfred, yeah, uh, oh, off Fred, of, of Fred. That's right, not Alfred. I just saw Justice League. Alfred's on my mind. Um, so it's uh, Alfred's in, um, you know, seeing uh, Japanese tourists wearing miniskirts and just thinking horrendous, like, oh my god, what sluts, you know? But it's like, well, what, you know? That's how people used to dress. Like she's just gotten so used to the environment, and it's a, it's that also is a warning about how quickly we acclimatize to you know, whatever we're in. And we've seen that in real life through all kinds of horrendous kind of situations that have happened around the world for, for many, many years, um, how quickly people acclimatize and find ways to cope. And it's just that better the devil you know thing, which is um, horrendously scary because um, it, if we can find a way to cope, we don't try to change things, you know, and things have to get in, in like it's so, so bad before people say, you know what, it's worth the risk to try and improve the situation. Uh, but if I don't say anything, I'll get by, I'll survive until tomorrow. And that's uh, particularly interesting. If you have a question, just put your hand up. I will repeat it into the recording. Um, so I guess I wanted to pick up on some of the threads you were talking about with technology. So, I mean, you've talked about the, hands ma- the Handmaid's Tale a few times. Um, and I think it provides an interesting contrast to the many examples where technology is the force of evil itself or the, you know, it causes the potential for evil. Um, and I think that's where example where it's actually part of the evil is performed by taking technology away, if that makes sense. Um, and then there's another example which um, I think is a really interesting case study and you'd probably find it really interesting to read called The Slinks, which is a kind of a post-apocalyptic dystopian um, novel um, from Russia, written in the 80s, I think. And it's really fascinating because one of the most important parts of that is, you know, the way that the um, the lower classes are kept controlled is by they don't know how to make fire. So it's such a basic form of technology, but it's it's really powerful form of social control by taking that technology away. And I thought The Handmaid's Tale had a little bit of that as well when, it, you know, they took away their bank accounts and, you know, they shut down the computers and all of those forms of communication technology. Um, so I just, yeah, wanted to see what you thought about that as an idea. Right now, I think if the uh, technology was to fail, it would be more of an apocalyptic situation than anything else. I uh, was so reliant on on technology to the to the point where it has rewired our brains and is actually affecting our bodies. Isn't our thumb now our most dominant finger rather than our index finger? Um, I really like the idea of the the fact that uh, if you starve someone of knowledge, then you can control them by something as simple as how to make fire. That's fantastic. What is the book called again? The Slinks. The Slinks. Uh, I think it's it's all about access. Um, and for example, the way Handmaid's Tale kind of works is it's about access to technology. So if you don't have access, you are under control of you know people who do, and that has always been the same. Back to uh, the early Catholic Church, you know, you every all the scriptures were in Latin. The priests would speak in Latin. The congregation didn't understand it. So the people who had access to the information controlled society. 
So it is that, you know, those who have access and those who have access to all of the sum total of human knowledge at that point have ultimate control. We have theoretically democratized access to the sum total of human knowledge, like in our hands. Um, But what we now have is an inability to discern what's real and what's false. And that in itself is a type of control. I think what's uh, what we're seeing is a lot of people kind of spreading misinformation in order to obfuscate um, and therefore control um, again, so it's about access to the dissemination of um, information through major channels and things like that. So, so I think technology um, isn't always – it's not always uh, oppression through the use, direct use of technology. Sometimes it's oppression through you know, limited access to, but somebody else has it you know, and, and they're able to use it. If they didn't have it, they wouldn't be able to kind of run the society. Made my brain just throw up a thought, which is what happens. But it's funny that we always think of dystopia as some kind of future concept – Whereas really, when you're looking back into the past, uh, we've been living in dystopias of one kind or another pretty much forever. Isn't that sad? Quick, someone ask a question so we can make it positive. Oh, no, there are two. Um, so my question, it sort of riffs on what you were mentioning before about how in some dystopias things change so quickly that people end up learning how to cope with them. Um, it immediately got me thinking about an article I read last week by Catherine Viner, the editor of The Guardian, um, and she was saying how there's things that have been changed at the moment, you know, the rise of fake news. And in a throwaway line in there, she says, well, we'll just put up with it and we'll watch some dystopian fiction. Um, as though dystopias are becoming a coping strategy because people are, uh, and the, the popularity of them is because, you know, people are seeing that things aren't great at the moment, but at least we can imagine something worse that somehow makes it a coping strategy for the now. Uh, I guess to what extent do you think that, like, dystopian fiction is sort of a coping strategy rather than a way to actually change um, the present into a you know a better future. I, I think mass media has always been used um, to pacify populations. Um, it goes back to Karl Marx. I think it was Karl Marx who was kind of you know the, um, religion is the opiate of the masses, and he was speaking at a time where opiates were not considered the evil they are today. Like they were very commonly available, you could go buy heroin over the counter. That was fine. Um, so he was really talking about it was a way to pacify the masses, and I think television is very much used that way, and and. You know, mainstream media. At the same time, while many people maybe do do that, that doesn't stop an author from putting in the seeds of of something you know subtextual that kind of makes people. You know, eventually, someone's going to get work and they're kind of going to say, "Okay, I get what that's about now." Uh, so I think it's. And and the best way to do it is gently, gently, like not bashing people over the head and kind of say, this can it's happening now. Uh, Trump, Trump, Trump. It's about kind of just seeding it in, saying, "Look at this horrible story." Um, and having it just close enough to think, well, yeah, that actually does make me think if I stop for a minute. So I'm not going to say, I, I think, yeah, yeah, I think it can be. Like most mass media is used by people as a way to escape from their lives. At the same time, that doesn't prevent us from kind of just seeding a few little bits of information there that might help. I think the thing about um, a lot of dystopian, especially film, uh, is there's always a hero. There's always somebody who comes along to subvert the norm and maybe that's aspirational maybe that's why people are so drawn to it because it's like this world is becoming so fraught and I'm just one single person uh, but one single person can make quite a difference when you look at at the Hunger Games, the huge popularity of that is is because it's it's one person who becomes figurehead for for resistance and for for change, and and she leads quite unwillingly, 
quite unwillingly creates an, an upturn um, and a, a revolution. So I think it, it has to do pe- why people take such comfort, I guess, in dystopias is because they get that feeling that there will be some way to change it. Something will come along. Children of men thinking about, you know, um, and now her name has completely slipped my mind, but the pregnant woman, she's this that symbol of hope. She's that symbol of that one person who can change things. I suddenly remembered my lost thought um, yes. <laughs> from earlier, uh, which was also back on um, about uh, – the Handmaid's Tale and to do with technology and controlling. Um, I think one of the things that that happens in that society, which is reminded of children of men, is that people are losing the ability to procreate, so women just can't seem to get pregnant. And that seems to be placed at the door. Of, it's always the women who just can't seem to get pregnant, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, as as is addressed in the in the show, where they say, you know, it's just a, it's a because it's such a patriarchal society, you cannot even raise the question that maybe it could be the guys. So it's um, yeah, uh, but that's laid um, at the feet of technology as well, where the, there's questions raised about GM cro- crops and about you know manipulation of you know, food sources and, and um, you know, poisoning the food supply and whether that's had an ultimate impact on the ability of, on, on humankind and their ability to procreate. So it's, that's one of those kind of, um, it kind of almost, it, it kind of almost makes it a, almost a, an apocalyptic story rather than just a pure dystopian story. Yeah, we have one more time. Uh, hi, uh, this is a bit of a two-parter. Firstly, does a post-apocalypse slash dystopian fiction, does is it um, a product of uh, societal attitudes or does it create societal attitudes? And secondly, this is something I'm very passionate about. The film Gadiga uh, basically sets up the society uh, that has used genetic engineering as like the epitome of evil and um, how oppressive and all that sort of stuff. But in real life, genetic engineering can be very beneficial. What responsibility do creators have to limit the impact of uh, potential, potentially spreading fear and paranoia about new technology? So, I mean, there's this huge outcry about GM crops. And while I think it might be a bit scary to be tinkering with the genetic makeup of, of things. Um, we've been doing it through selective breeding and, and crossbreeding for a really long time. I mean, it's just a different form of that. Um, and so there's that panic where it's like we're, we're consuming altered foods, whereas, you know, some people say GM crops could save the world. It all comes from perspective and it all comes from what you believe and, and people their beliefs are so their beliefs are so strongly held that you cannot shake i have i have a friend who literally will not use a microwave she believes it radiates her food and there is nothing that can shake her from that and if and if you're looking at at food and thinking what i consume has been altered has been has been messed with in a way that i don't under like that i personally do not understand then of course, this fear is going to be created. Um, of course, people are going to 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 be terrified of it. When in actuality, I think it's a big grey area. GM, especially GM food, in regards to genetic modification on people, I think you're falling into an even 
deeper and more void-like grey area when it comes to that because you're looking at, at issues of, of personhood, the very makeup of people and what makes us different. Yeah, just that rabbit hole has just kind of expanded out into my vision. So I've got a lot of mixed up thoughts and feelings about this right now. Uh, I think the interesting thing about Gattaca is that um, it's not so much that the technology itself is used in a bad way, it's the society's response to that technology within that film. Like the technology is used to eliminate disease and to increase human strength and longevity and all of those kind of things. Um, but the society reacts in a way that says, okay, well, we will only have these enhanced super beings doing all the cool stuff and everybody else. Like if you haven't, if your parents haven't bothered to sort of, you know, pay for you to be the best you can be, then you're just going to be sweeping floors. So um, it's, again, it's not so much that the technology is at fault, it's the use of that technology within that society. And I would completely agree that GM foods, as far as every scientific research kind of um, has found, like there's no evidence that they're harmful to human beings at all. But the insidious way that some corporations manage to um, eliminate, for example, like create foodstuffs where you have to buy the seeds from them every year because the plants won't seed themselves um, with selective breeding as well. So, yeah. Right, so it's the volume of the food. Yeah, so, okay. So, you know, yeah, it is. It's capitalism. But also, like... Bad day, capitalism. Well, I think we might end it there because otherwise we will go into another 10 minutes and we don't want that so um yeah i guess please join me in thanking our wonderful panelists and thank you for your wonderful questions also that was adolfo orangues marley jane ward and peter allen discussing classic dystopian films and novels we run regular author talks panel discussions and film screenings at all branches of yarra libraries so please keep an eye on our website for you we'd recommend first thursday films our monthly foreign language film screenings at collingwood library In March, we'll be screening the Turkish drama Winter Sleep. If after this you're keen to watch Metropolis, Alphaville or Blade Runner, please pop into your local branch of Yarra Libraries or place a reservation online. In the meantime, Yarra Libraries swears they won't leave popcorn on the floor of the theatre. Happy watching!